Chapter twenty four from Abraham Lincoln A History, Volume three, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln A History, Volume three, Chapter twenty four. The rebel conspirators were not unmindful of the great advantages they had hitherto derived from their complaints, their intrigues, their assumptions, their arrogant demands. No sooner was the provisional government organized at Montgomery than they appointed a new embassy of three commissioners to proceed to Washington and make the fourth effort to assist, protect, and if possible to establish the rebellion through negotiation. They not only desired to avert a war, but, reasoning from the past, had a well-grounded faith that they would secure peaceful acquiescence in their schemes. The commissioners were instructed to solicit a reception in their official character, and if that were refused, to accept an unofficial interview, to insist on the de facto and de jure independence of the confederate states but nevertheless to accede to a proposition to refer the subject of their mission to the united states senate or to withhold an answer until the congress of the united states should assemble and pronounce a decision in the premises provided the existing peaceful status were rigidly maintained this modest program was made necessary by the half-fledged condition of the rebellion. Its personal jealousies were not yet hushed. Its notions of states' rights were not yet swallowed up in an imperious military dictatorship. Above all, its military preparation consisted mainly of a self-sacrificing enthusiasm. Notwithstanding the two months' drill and battery building at Charleston, Davis did not agree with Governor Pickens that the moment had come to storm Sumter. Fort Sumter should be in our possession at the earliest moment possible, wrote the rebel war secretary, but thorough preparation must be made before an attack is attempted. A failure would demoralize our people and injuriously affect us in the opinion of the world as reckless and precipitate. Therefore they made Beauregard a brigadier general and sent him to command in the harbor of Charleston. Beauregard's professional inspection justified this prudence. He wrote, If Sumter was properly garrisoned and armed, it would be a perfect Gibraltar to anything but constant shelling night and day from the four points of the compass. As it is, the weakness of the garrison constitutes our greatest advantage, and we must for the present turn our attention to preventing it from being reinforced. This idea I am gradually and cautiously infusing into the minds of all here, but should we have to open our batteries upon it, I hope to be able to do so with all the advantages the condition of things here will permit. All that I ask is time for completing my batteries and preparing and organizing properly my command. The first of the three commissioners, Martin J. Crawford, arrived in Washington the day before Lincoln's inauguration. He would have nothing more to do with Buchanan. He wrote, 
his fears for his personal safety, the apprehensions for the security of his property, together with the cares of state and his advanced age, render him wholly disqualified for his present position. He is as incapable now of purpose as a child. With the arrival of the second commissioner, John Forsyth, they prepared to begin operations upon the new administration. It was comparatively easy to call into caucus the active and disguised secessionists who yet remained in the city. Wigfall, Mason, Hunter, and Breckinridge were still in the Senate. Virginia and the other border states had a number of sympathizing congressmen in the House. Bell, Crittenden, and Douglas, though loyal, could be approached with professions of peace. Seward, in order to gain information, had kept himself during the whole winter in relation with all parties, and had openly proclaimed that his policy was one of peace and conciliation. The prospect of beginning negotiations seemed flattering. Nevertheless, their first caucus over the inaugural agreed that it was Lincoln's purpose at once to attempt the collection of the revenue, to reinforce and hold Fort Sumter and Pickens, and to retake the other places. A day or two later, on comparing the fragmentary gossip they had raked together, in which the difficulties of reinforcing Sumter were dimly reflected, with a general conversation alleged to have been held by one of their informants with Seward, they framed and reported to Montgomery a theory of probable success in their mission. Seward, they thought, was to be the ruling power of the new administration. Seward and Cameron were publicly committed to a peace policy. They would establish an understanding with the Secretary of State. This gentleman is urgent for delay. The tenor of his language is to this effect. I have built up the Republican Party. I have brought it to triumph, but its advent to power is accompanied by great difficulties and perils. I must save the party and save the government in its hands. To do this, war must be averted. The Negro question must be dropped, the irrepressible conflict ignored, and a Union Party to embrace the border slave states inaugurated. I have already whipped Mason and Hunter in their own state. I must crush out Davis, Toombs, and their colleagues in sedition in their respective states. Saving the border states to the Union by moderation and justice, the people of the cotton states unwillingly led into secession will rebel against their leaders and reconstruction will follow. The commissioners therefore deemed it their duty to support Mr. Seward's policy until we reach the point of pacific negotiations, it is unimportant what may be his subsequent hopes and plans. It is well that he should indulge in dreams which we know are not to be realized. They, of course, make no mention of the arguments, agencies, and influences which we may infer they employed in their deceitful intent to foster these dreams, unless, indeed, they were instrumental in provoking the Senate debate of March 6 and 7, in which Clingman attacked the inaugural as an announcement of war, while Douglas defended it as a manifesto of peace, for the purpose, as Mr. Forsyth wrote that Douglas told him, of fixing that construction on it, 
and of tomahawking it afterwards if it the administration departed from it acting upon this asserted anxiety of seward for delay and for peace the commissioners now agreed upon what they elaborately described in a long dispatch to montgomery as a most ingenious plan they would force the administration to accept or reject their mission and thereby confront the immediate issue of peace or war unless seward would consent to maintain the present military status having reached this conclusion they laboriously drew up memorandum which they purposed to ask seward to sign and sent it to the state department by an agent but mr seward was at home ill and could not be seen their long dispatches home and their mysterious allusions to conversations to agents and intermediaries convey the impression that they were in relation with the secretary of state but whether they were duped by others or whether they were themselves duping the montgomery cabinet indisputable indications in these documents contradict their assertions at last however their vigilance was rewarded with what they considered an item of important news and they hurried off several telegrams to montgomery things look better here than was believed the impression prevails in administration circles that fort sumter will be evacuated within ten days this was on saturday night march nine and so far from being exclusive or advanced information it was substantially printed in next morning's newspapers after four days consideration by the lincoln government and extended discussion in a cabinet meeting the loss of sumter seemed unavoidable and the rumor was purposely given out to prepare the public mind if the need should finally come for the great sacrifice the jefferson davis cabinet at montgomery clutched at the report with avidity under this hope they were no longer satisfied with the existing peaceful status specified in their instructions of february twenty seven and repeated in the prepared memorandum of the commissioners can't bind our hands a day without evacuation of sumter and pickens replied toombs imperatively by telegraph on monday march eleven until sumter should be evacuated it was idle to talk of peaceful negotiation he added in his written dispatch to the commissioners while they were further instructed to pertinaciously demand the withdrawal of the troops and vessels from pickens and pensacola thus spurred into activity the commissioners deemed it incumbent on them to make an effort the whole tenor of their previous dispatches was calculated to convey the impression that they were twisting the secretary of state at pleasure between their diplomatic thumb and finger on monday march eleven they sent him their first message not the demand of tombs that day received by telegraph not even the mild suggestion of their original instructions to maintain the status and appeal to congress but a meek inquiry whether they would be allowed to make a sort of back-door visit to the state department to describe it in their own words we availed ourselves of the kind consent of senator hunter of virginia to see mr seward and learn if he would consent to an informal interview with us mr seward of course received senator hunter politely for he still professed to be a loyal senator representing a loyal state and gave him the stereotyped diplomatic reply 
that he would be obliged to consult the president. The next morning, Seward sent Hunter a note of irreproachable courtesy, but of freezing conclusiveness. It will not be in my power, he wrote, to receive the gentlemen of whom we conversed yesterday. You will please explain to them that this decision proceeds solely on public grounds and not from any want of personal respect. This was a cold bath to the commissioners, and the theories of their own finesse and of the torturing perplexities into which Seward had been thrown became untenable, and they reported, Today at eleven o'clock Mr. Hunter brought us the promised reply, a copy of which is appended to this dispatch. It is polite, but it was considered by us at once as decisive of our course. We deemed it not compatible with the dignity of our government to make a second effort, and took for granted that, having failed in obtaining an unofficial interview with the Secretary of State, we should equally fail with the President. Our only remaining course was plain, and we followed it at once in the preparation of a formal note to the State Department informing the United States government of our official presence here the objects of our mission, and asking an early day to be appointed for an official interview. They then repeat the gossip of the day, what Mr. Lincoln was said to have told a gentleman from Louisiana, that there would be no war and that he was determined to keep the peace, and what Crittenden told Crawford, that General Scott was also for peace and would sustain Mr. Seward's policy, Finally, showing in what complete ignorance they were of events happening about them, they asked with bewildered curiosity, can it be that while they refuse to negotiate with us to keep the Republican Party in heart, they mean to abandon both forts on militia grounds and thus avoid the occasion of a collision? Or do they mean to refer the questions raised by our note to the Senate? Time only can determine, and we await the result. We are still of the opinion that Fort Sumter will be evacuated. The opinion gains ground here that Lieutenant Slemmer and Garrison will also be withdrawn from Fort Pickens. Toombs was ready to sue or bluster as occasion demanded. You have shown to the government of the United States, he wrote back to the commissioners, with commendable promptness and becoming dignity, that you were not supplicants for its grace and favor and willing to loiter in the antechambers of officials to patiently await their answer to your petition, but that you are the envoys of a powerful confederacy of sovereignties instructed to present and demand their rights. Nevertheless, instead of recalling these neglected envoys, he instructs them to communicate freely and often and to employ a secretary to assist them at such monthly compensation as you may deem reasonable. The hint to remain was hardly necessary. The commissioners apparently had no idea of abandoning their intrigues, unpromising as they were. Their secretary, John T. Pickett, now went to the State Department for an answer to the commissioner's formal note. Seward replied March 15 in a lengthy and courteous but dignified memorandum that he did not perceive in the Confederate States a rightful and accomplished revolution or an independent nation, that he could not act on the assumption or in any way admit that they constituted a foreign power with which diplomatic relations ought to be established, that he had no authority, nor was he at liberty, to recognize the commissioners as diplomatic agents or hold correspondence or other communication with them. 
This paper, if delivered, would have terminated the labors and functions of the commissioners, but they were in no hurry to return empty-handed to Montgomery and still fondly nursed the theories so elaborately described in their long dispatches. One of them repeated it with emphasis in a private letter to a member of the Montgomery cabinet. We are feeling our way here cautiously. We are playing a game in which time is our best advocate, and if our government could afford the time, I feel confident of winning. There is a terrible fight in the cabinet. Our policy is to encourage the peace element in the fight and at least blow up the cabinet on the question. This dispatch is a frank confession that the rebel embassy was so far a failure and that its future opportunity lay solely in the barren regions of hotel gossip and newspaper rumors. The commissioners would merit no further historic mention had they not unexpectedly secured a most important ally, John A. Campbell, an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, appointed from Alabama, and in the confidence, and as it soon turned out, in the secret interest of the South and the rebellion. Justice Campbell now made himself the voluntary intermediary between the commissioners and the Secretary of State. Owing to his station and professions, Seward gave him undue intimacy and confidence, enabling Campbell, under guise of promoting peace, to give aid and comfort to the enemies of the United States in violation of his oath and duty. The details of the intrigue rest entirely upon rebel statements and mainly upon those of Campbell himself, who gave both a confidential and a semi-official version to Jefferson Davis. The latter Davis transmitted in a special message to the Confederate Congress to fire the Southern heart. Campbell, having thus made his share of the transaction official and having for a quarter of a century stood before the public accusing Seward and the Lincoln administration of equivocating conduct and systematic duplicity, history must adjudge the question as well as it may with the help of his own testimony. It has already been stated that Seward's official refusal to receive the commissioners was being prepared at the State Department. The assistant secretary had promised to send it to the commissioner's hotel. The commissioners thus relate the beginning of Campbell's intrigue. The interview between Colonel Pickett and the assistant secretary of state occurred on Friday morning, the 14th inst. Immediately thereafter, and within a brief space of time after Colonel Pickett's statement to us, the Honorable John A. Campbell of the Supreme Court of the United States sought an interview with Mr. Crawford of this commission, and after stating what he knew to be the wish and desire of Mr. Seward to preserve the peace between the two governments, asked if there could be no further delay for an answer to our note to the government, stating at the same time that he had no doubt if it were pressed that a most positive, though polite, rejection would be the result. Commissioner Crawford's official reply to this overture is best described by Toombs's formula that he should pertinaciously demand the evacuation of Sumter and maintenance of the status elsewhere. The alternative and confidential reply we can only conjecture, but it may well be presumed that Campbell fully revealed to Crawford his sympathy with the rebellion and his purpose to aid it, and that he was in return thoroughly instructed in the game which was to encourage the peace element in the fight and at least blow up the cabinet on the question. 
Thus instructed and prepared, Justice Campbell, on the same day, March 14 or 15, made a voluntary call on Mr. Seward, and in the general conversation which he induced, evidently played his part of the game of peace and reconciliation with consummate ability. He probably painted the dreams which we know are not to be realized in such rosy colors as to call forth from Seward the hopeful observation that a civil war might be prevented by the success of my Campbell's mediation. The impression upon Seward that Campbell was laboring honestly for the preservation of the Union was also strengthened by his having brought with him Justice Nelson, to whom the slightest suspicion of disloyalty has never attached. It seems clear that these professions of patriotic zeal threw Mr. Seward off his guard as to Campbell's motives, and that he accepted his intervention as a Union peacemaker, not as a rebel emissary. Seward replied confidentially that it was impossible to receive the commissioners in any diplomatic capacity or character, or even to see them personally. Campbell adds that he said it was not desirable to deny them or to answer them. As part of a general policy of delay and avoidance of conflict, he may have said and meant it. As an immediate and urgent diplomatic step, he certainly did not mean it because his assistant secretary had already promised to send the answer to the commissioner's hotel, when for mere temporary delay some other expedient might have been used. Continuing his conversation and unguardedly enlarging his confidence, Seward, in answer to Campbell's direct inquiry, ventured the opinion that Sumter would be evacuated and collision avoided at Charleston. The idea was now new. The rumor was not new. The rumor had been openly and half-officially printed in the newspapers nearly a whole week. The commissioners had telegraphed it to Montgomery. Campbell, however, caught eagerly at the suggestion and proposed to write the peaceful news to Jefferson Davis. And Seward, with a momentary excess of enthusiasm, authorized him, so Campbell re relates, to write. Before this letter reaches you, Sumter will be evacuated, or the orders will have issued for that purpose, and no change is contemplated at present in respect to Pickens. Campbell rushed off in a fever of delight to tell the commissioners and magnified the confidence to the proportions of a pledge. The incident began to grow more rapidly than the story of the three black crows. The commissioners, on their part, hurried a telegram to Montgomery. By pressing, we can get an answer to our official note tomorrow. If we do, we believe it will be adverse to recognition and peace. We are sure that within five days, Sumter will be evacuated. We are sure that no steps will be taken to change the military status. With a few days' delay, a favorable answer may be had. Our personal interests command us to press. Duty to our country commands us to wait. What shall we do? to all of which Toombs answered laconically, wait a reasonable time and then ask for instructions. It is needless to point out the absurd variance of this announcement with Seward's alleged statement, which was simply an opinion, that orders would be issued to evacuate Sumter within five days. He undoubtedly believed every word of this at the moment. Seward was then, as he declared to Lincoln in writing, in favor of evacuation, and Scott's written draft of an order to that effect, under date of the 11th, was in the President's hands. The President had as yet announced no decision. On the 15th, for the first time, the Cabinet voted five to evacuate, two to attempt to supply. 
Seward had still every reason to suppose that the necessity that the cabinet majority, General Scott's influence, and Lincoln's desire to avoid war would, acting together, verify his prediction. Presuming that he was talking to a friend and not an enemy, to a judge and not an advocate, to a unionist and not a rebel, he undoubtedly and properly thought his words were received as a prediction and not as a pledge. The five days elapsed, but Lincoln sent no order to Anderson and announced no decision to the cabinet. He was still patiently seeking and had not found his way out of the dilemma. He had not yet beheld the salvation of the Lord. He wished to decide not upon impulse or even necessity, but upon judgment and advantage. If, like the farmer in his favorite illustration, he could not plow through the log, perhaps he might plow around it. He was meditating on the visit of Fox to Sumter, of Lehman and Hurlbut to Charleston. He was deliberating about a diversion upon the Virginia Convention, Above all, he was waiting to hear from his order to reinforce Fort Pickens, dispatched on the 12th of March. His cabinet ministers did not yet understand him. Seward, on the one hand, and Blair, on the other, unused to men of his fiber, began to fear this was vacillation, indecision, executive incompetence. The atmosphere of Washington had hitherto largely produced two classes of men, those who bluster and domineer, those who protest and yield. Lincoln belonged to neither class, and his persistent non-committal, his silent hopefulness, his patient and well-considered inaction, baffled their prophecy. Such tenacity of purpose combined with such reticence of declaration was an anomaly in recent federal administration. The hopes of the rebels, so unexpectedly inflated, began once more to collapse. Governor Pickens sent inquiries to the commissioners. Toombs telegraphed them, we can't hear from you. Campbell was summoned and dispatched to the State Department. He had interviews on March 21 and 22, but in reality, Seward was no wiser than he had been in the previous interviews and could only repeat his beliefs and his predictions and declare in his philosophical vein that governments could not move with bank accuracy. For a third time, the conspirators grew impatient, and again Campbell on Saturday, March 30, and Monday, April 1, went to the State Department as the messenger of rebellion. By this time, Seward had real information. A second cabinet vote had been taken on March 29, in which the majority was reversed. The president had ordered the preparation of the Sumter expedition, and Seward himself, though still advising the abandonment of Sumter, was preparing an expedition to reinforce Fort Pickens. Seward at this point must have realized how injudicious he had been to give Campbell any confidence whatever, since to preserve secrecy for his own project he must abruptly break off the intimacy. Perhaps he had by this time divined that he was dealing with a public enemy, at all events, whatever may have been his reasons, he took occasion to correct any misunderstanding which might previously have sprung up by giving Campbell a written memorandum, April 1, as follows. The president may desire to supply Sumter, but will not do so without giving notice to Governor Pickens. Adding verbally, Campbell says, that he still did not believe the attempt would be made and that there was no design to reinforce Sumter. 
Campbell acknowledges that he took notice of this very important correction and definition. There was a departure here from the pledges of the previous month, he writes, but with the verbal explanation I did not consider it a matter then to complain of. Commissioners and their game here drop into the background, and Justice Campbell takes up the role of leading conspirator. Two days afterwards, we find him making a confidential report to the insurrectionary chief at Montgomery as follows. I do not doubt that Sumter will be evacuated shortly without any effort to supply it. But in respect to Pickens, I do not think there is any settled plan, and it will not be abandoned spontaneously and under any generous policy, though perhaps they may be quite willing to let it be beleaguered and reduced to extremities. I can only infer as to this. All that I have is a promise that the status will not be attempted to be changed prejudicially to the Confederate States without notice to me. It is known that I make these assurances on my own responsibility. I have no right to mention any name or to pledge any person. I am the only responsible person to you. I consenting to accept such assurances as, as are made to me and to say I have confidence that this will or will not be done. I have no expectation that there will be bad faith in the dealings with me. Nor I do not see that I can do more. I have felt them in a variety of forms as to the practicability of some armistice or truce that should be durable and would relieve the anxiety of the country, but at present there can be no compact treaty or recognition of any kind. There will be no objection to giving the commissioners their answer, but if the answer is not called for, it will not be sent, and it is intimated that it would be more agreeable to withhold it. So far as I can judge, the present desire is to let things remain as they are without action of any kind. There is a strong indisposition for the call of Congress, and it will not be done except under necessity. The radicals of the Senate went off in anger, and Trumbull's coercion resolution was offered after a contumelious interview with the President. My own notion is that the inactive policy is as favorable to you as any that this administration could adopt for you, and that I would not interrupt it. Here the learned judge might have stopped, and perhaps would have left posterity to question his method rather than his motives. But inexorable history demanded her tribute of truth. Under her master spell, he went on, and in the concluding paragraph of the letter, his own hand recorded a confession, little to have been expected from an officer, whose duty it was to expound and to administer the law of treason as written in the Constitution of the United States and the Acts of Congress. The great want of the Confederate States is peace. I shall remain here some ten or fifteen days. My own future course is in some manner depending upon circumstances and the opinions of friends. At present, I have access to the administration I could not have except under my present relations to the government, and I do not know who could have the same freedom. I have therefore deferred any settlement on the subject until the chance of being of service at this critical period has terminated. This letter is strictly confidential and private. There is no need of comment on this aid and comfort to the enemies of his government by a member of the highest court of the United States. It only remains to note the acknowledgment and estimate of it by Jefferson Davis, replying from Montgomery under date of April 6. 
Accept my thanks for your kind and valuable services to the cause of the Confederacy and of peace between those who, though separated, have many reasons to feel towards each other more than the friendship common among nations. Our policy is, as you say, peace. In any event, I will gratefully remember your zealous labor in a sacred cause and hope your fellow citizens may at some time give you acceptable recognition of your service and appreciate the heroism with which you have encountered a hazard from which most men would have shrunk. While this direct correspondence between Davis and Campbell was being carried on, the commissioners to whom A.B. Roman had been sent as a reinforcement were partly as a matter of form, partly for ulterior purposes, kept in Washington by the Montgomery cabinet to loiter in the antechambers of officials. The occupation seems to have grown irksome to them, for nowise deceived or even encouraged by Campbell's pretended pledges. They asked, under date of March 26, whether we shall dally longer with a government hesitating and doubting as to its own course, or shall we demand our answer at once? On April 2, Toombs gave them Jefferson Davis's views at length. He thought the policy of Mr. Seward would prevail. He cared nothing for Seward's motives or calculations. So long as the United States neither declare war nor establish peace, it affords the Confederate States the advantages of both conditions and enables them to make all the necessary arrangements for the public defense and the solidifying of their government more safely, cheaply, and expeditiously than they could were the attitude of the United States more definite and decided. The commissioners were therefore to make no demand for their answer, but maintain their present position. In view of this confident boast of the chief of the rebellion of the advantages of both conditions, his subsequent accusation of bad faith on the part of the Lincoln administration is culminating proof of the insincerity and torturous methods of the rebel game. End of chapter 24